Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Okay, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to the Focus Hunting Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Jared Fraser of 2% for Conservation. Not only is Jared one of the most stand-up people I've ever met, he's one of the toughest SOBs I've ever come across. As we get into this episode, you're going to see what I'm talking about. With spring bear now underway in a lot of regions, Backroads Maps has you covered. Whether you're hip to technology and you prefer using an app, or maybe you're old school and you prefer a traditional map, or maybe you're like me and you're running both. Doesn't matter where you are in Canada, Backroads Maps has you covered. Go check them out at backroadsmapbooks.com. While you're there, use the promo code FOCUS and you're going to get 10% off your order. This sucks. Hey, can you hear me all right? Loud and clear, man. Awesome. Are you wanting video or good without? I'm good without. All right. It's uh records a little nicer without video. A little less glitchy. I hear you been doing a few of these this year and the ones with video always end up just a little jacked up afterwards yeah yeah so how you been hanging in there um getting getting back to health which is which is good and um i don't know if, if you had heard but uh had a heart attack back in january you did yeah uh thanks to putting lyme's disease and covid in the same body Dude, what? Uh, when was the last time we spoke? I thought it wasn't that long ago, was it? Uh, it was about a week prior. Oh, no way! No, I didn't hear that. Yeah, I was looking through my notes trying to see if I had, if we had talked about it at some point, and I, I don't think we had. Yeah, I um, was. I, I had been having heart tremors and stuff since having COVID last year. And it was minor and basically anyone who lives in the mountains and does a lot of stuff in the mountains, it's, it's one of the side effects you can, you know, you're about 50, 50 forgetting. Um, but what I didn't know about was stuff going on in my body with limes that was still going on. 
uh, from when I had it back in 2018 and 2019 and uh, it ended up getting an adrenal surge um, from my nerves being thrown out of place by the Lyme's disease. Long story short, adrenal surge and a heart tremor happened at the same time and uh, basically just caused a heart attack. So then I spent, um, spent the better part of a month uh, not really even able to walk around, couldn't drive myself anywhere um, because my adrenal glands just kept firing every three or four hours. And it was like, like fight or flight, but on steroids, um, the actual steroid of adrenaline. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, my adrenal glands would purge every three hours. So heart rate would go through the roof. Uh, body temperature would go up to about 104. Um, just crazy stuff. We thought it was cancer. We thought the doctors thought it was cancer and then come to find out it was uh, from the Lyme's disease. So I'm, I'm not at a risk anymore. Um, now that I've gotten some physical therapy in and, and some other stuff, but I'm still like, I can't shoot my bow this year. I can't um, row a boat. I can't go kayaking. I can't rock climb with my kids. Can't split wood. I'm going to be basically dead weight on hunting trips <laughs> this year because I can't carry a pack over 40 pounds uh, for the next eight months. So yeah, wild times, man. Oh, well, I mean, your health is number one. Definitely. I'm just sitting over here with my jaw sitting on the table. Dude, I, I didn't even know, we, man. We did what we could to make sure as few folks, you know, that, that it wouldn't affect 2% negatively uh, as best we could. So that's been... Uh, there was quite a bit of stuff that we pivoted over uh, to different people within the organization. And at one point it was looking like I might um, uh, right up until we got a, a proper diagnosis and we're all thinking it was cancer and stuff there. Were, we were about a week away from me handing over the executive director position just in case. It's funny as you get older, eh? I mean, you start feeling these, you start having these little pains and places right. you never, you never knew yet even had anything there and then you know you start looking at you know google it like oh i got side pain what the hell's going on here i never had side pain before and the first word that comes up is cancer and you're like what the f no so like i have a headache what is it oh it's definitely an aneurysm you know <laughs> like yeah man i had this groin pain forever and i was bugging the crap out of me and i was like oh man it's getting worse and worse and worse and I started radiating up my side and i went to the doctor and he's like oh you know your your hip's pretty close to your rib cage maybe you're just you know you're just getting older and you should try doing some yoga or stretching and i'm so i try all that yeah like it's still going on i'm like no man i i got something going on and he's like like and he's like hey well we have to go we're gonna have to go look for underlying cancers now and i'm like what so it turns out i just had a freaking inguinal hernia fuck yeah yeah <laughs> like well why wouldn't we start with that yeah let's let's start well and and so on on my end it was you know i was glad they went after it right away because it was it was weird like i had no control they were like are you stressed i was like no <laughs> are you you know are, are you sleeping enough I'm like well no one sleeps enough but you know I'm, it's not like i'm up all night every night you know I, I'm, I'm sleeping a decent amount other than the fact these things they were waking me up in my sleep I'd have my adrenal glands just purge while I was sleeping and wake me up. And then it's like three hours of waiting for all of the adrenaline to run through my system and having to walk around the house and fall over and all this kind of stuff, scaring my wife half to death. Um, and, uh, you know, did all the CAT scans, did all the blood surveys and 
naturally because of COVID, everything took longer. So a, a blood scan that would normally take like two or three days took almost three weeks. And so we don't know what's going on. Meanwhile, every three hours, I'm having all the adrenaline in my body release at one time. Um, hardly able to sit up, hardly able to write and, or, or hardly anything. Um, so it was like about a month of not knowing and everyone just telling me, yeah, you should get your affairs in order. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just glad to be kind of on the other side of it, but I will be paying attention to every single weird ache and pain from now on. Cause apparently some of this stuff I could have caught earlier if I wouldn't have just written it off as like shoulder soreness or, you know, neck soreness or some of these other things. So, yeah. And that's hard too, though. You know what I mean? Cause you can't go see the doctor every time you got a little pain. And right. I mean, you know, I'm 42, like I have weird pains. And like, I remember when I was in my twenties and you'd be jumping off high stuff and lifting stuff with your back. And the guys are like, man, you're going to hurt when you're older. And you're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Now you turn 40 and you're like, I should have listened to the old timers. Yeah. It's, it's a bugger. So but, in the last couple of years, what you've had Lyme disease, did you have, you had COVID? Yeah. And uh, a heart actually, attack. Well, the heart attack was thanks to the combination of the two. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I've also tough had SOB. Very Jardia, you know, I'm, I'm just like a magnet <laughs> for outdoor diseases. Um, it's, I, I had uh, Jardia over my wedding and spent the first day of uh, my honeymoon in the emergency room. <laughs> with it. So this, my wife is used to this by now. Like she's like, Oh, you got the weird disease already. Cool. That's neat. <laughs> so how did you get, do you know how you got Lyme disease? Uh, yeah, it was a tick in Wisconsin. I, I went to uh, back, I'm originally from Wisconsin. You know, we don't really have Lyme's out here in Montana. There are a few rare cases, but you know, we don't have the right kind of ticks for it for the most part. Not yet, though they are starting to move here. Um, but I was back for my sister's wedding in 17. And it wasn't until 18 that I finally had to own up that something was really, really wrong. And I had to go to the hospital. Um, and that, that was pretty brutal. I, I was laid up most of the summer of 18. Um, and it, it, it was basically my first year of running 2%. Uh, I was fighting limes real hard. Um, and it, it wasn't until 2019, a lot of stuff started going back to normal. 2020 was for the most part, uh, symptom free, but after I had the COVID, then I was dealing with the heart thing, and then both came together for to start my 2021 off with a bang. So I got bit by a tick, and I had this. I was we were turkey hunting, and while well, I was turkey hunting, cruising around, I mean, that time there's ticks everywhere, and felt this itch on my shoulder, so I scratched it, it was still there, and I pulled my shirt back, and sure enough, there was a tick head, his head buried in my shoulder. I was often, I often wondered if like, maybe I should go get tested for Lyme disease now. I don't feel bad. I, I don't think I got it. Obviously, if it, if you notice it significantly, I, I didn't have it. So luckily, but man, so you're on the man. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, mostly back to normal and stuff. Like I, I did two podcasts while I was dealing with it because they'd been scheduled and it it's one of those things where once you've scheduled it, it's a real bugger to try to get it back on the calendar. So I did two of them. One of them, I was in the ER uh, for part of it. Oh, dude. <laughs> I, I ended up back in there. So I, I ended up back in the ER a second time uh, when I tried to drive myself. It wasn't a car accident. <laughs> I just 
I just was incapacitated and, and the doctors really wanted to put me on a monitor to see what was, try to figure out what was going on because they could catch one in the moment. And uh, I was like, well, at four o'clock, I got to hop on a call. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so I have it on, on speakerphone. It's like, <laughs> welcome to the, and they're like, wait, you're on a podcast. That's not a call. <laughs> <laughs> not the best uh, But yeah, yeah, I'm moving forward and, and glad to be. Man, you're an animal. That's all I got to say. <laughs> so uh, you're out in Manhattan, Montana, I believe. Yeah, just outside of Bozeman, Montana. Yeah, I love Montana. I don't know. I just have such a wanderlust for it. I don't, I don't know why. There's just something about it. I think ever since I've seen the movies, A River Runs Through It and Legends of the Fall, there's just mm. something about it. What's, yeah, uh, I, um, I fell in love with this state uh, when I first came out. Uh, in 07, I came out to go to a one-year school that offered wilderness uh, first responder and EMT and stuff. And it was so smoky from fires going on because it was August that I didn't even see the mountains. And I had, you know, driven across the whole two-thirds eastern half of the state that's, for the most part, prairies um, and some steppe and stuff and high desert. And I was starting to think, you know, maybe those pictures of the mountains were BS, you know, cause I, I didn't, I didn't see anything. And it wasn't until my first weekend, uh, in all the smoke, uh, went up and hiked up on this bridge and, 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 uh, camped out up there overnight. And my buddy woke me up the next morning and he's like, dude, look. And I was looking over the Bob Marshall wilderness with smoke down below all the peaks and all these gorgeous Rocky peaks are sticking up. And there's these elk bugling down below us in the smoke. We can't see them. And then see a bighorn ram come walking out on the far ridge about a half mile away. And I was done. I was just, I was done. I, I wasn't going to move back to the Midwest, um, you know, long term. It, 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 you'd have to, you know, incapacitate me to get me to do that. So, yeah, I think if there's anywhere else I, I would live other than BC, it would be Montana. I, uh, I don't know why it's just such a it's got a lot of history there too right so oh yeah you know it's a pretty it's a pretty neat spot for sure yeah yeah cool so you got uh, how many kids do you have i have two um i have a son who just turned 10 last week uh well actually a week ago today um which is just wild i'm, I'm only 34 so you know in in my circle of friends and stuff i'm on the young end for having kids so it, it does feel kind of you know, weird to have a, a decade old kid now. Um, he was born here and then our daughter is eight years old. And right now she's somewhere over at the neighbors. They built a fort out of an old broken down truck. So she's probably getting tetanus and stuff, but. Um, Following in the I'll... footsteps of her old man. <laughs> uh, she's she's our, our wild child. Our, our son's more analytical and um, you know, interest in engineering type stuff. And when it comes to the outdoors, he's, he's more the sit in the blind or in the tree stand kind of person. And she's the one who's like, no, I want to go hike and, and, and bag that peak over there and see if there's any animals on the other side of it. So it's a fun, fun mix. No doubt. Yeah. My youngest is like that. My oldest is son is he's like yours. And then my youngest son, he's, yeah, he's the same way. He's all over the map. Jared, um, you know, maybe you could uh, introduce yourself and let all the folks up here know who you are. Uh, we kind of went over a lot of stuff already, and I was actually going to 
going to uh, ask you about hunting this fall, and I get, but I guess we'll uh, we'll skip right past that stuff. Um, yeah, maybe just to give yourself a, a quick introduction and you know um, on who you are and, and what uh, what you're up to these days. Yeah. Well, my name's Jared Fraser. I'm the executive director of Two Percent for Conservation. Um, I've been uh, the ED here since the end of 2017. Uh, came on full time towards the end of 2018 in that role uh, as we've been growing. Uh, live here just outside of the Bozeman area, uh, about 20 minutes down the interstate and in some what's generally considered high desert. So it might feel kind of weird if you think of Bozeman as a ski town and then I'm over here with my cactus and yucca plants and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's been, it, it's been just an absolute privilege to get to uh, be involved in the conservation community here in Montana and all that goes on here in the Pacific Northwest as well. I know we're not as, as you know, Northwest as, as BC and Washington and whatnot, but there are parts of the state that, you know, we kind of own up to some of that ecology and, and, and whatnot. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not great at introducing myself. So that's, that's about all I got for you without more props. That'll work, man. How about we uh, back up a little further? I, I love hearing the story about um, your first experience with ice fishing when your parents took you out. And, uh, <laughs> so maybe you can just uh, tell us a bit about your connection to the outdoors, you know, growing up, that sort of thing. But uh, if you could tie that story into it, I'd love to hear that one again. Yeah. So for me, the outdoors just, it's always been there. And part of it was out of necessity. Well, not part of it. My my early childhood in particular, it was necessity. Um, my parents worked with uh, at-risk youth and, and in abuse situations and stuff, and they were entirely on giving-based income. And their, their uh, income the year I was born total was less than $8,000, which even back in the 80s was like nothing. So my parents hunted and fished and farmed and, and did a lot of stuff to make up uh, as much of they, as they could of that gap. My dad uh, trapped aggressively. He uh, collected roadkill for deer hides. Um, we built uh, ugly sticks, uh, you know, the fishing poles. Uh, we, were, we were building those when I was a little kid. I still remember the smell um, when we would be wrapping the string. But the, the ice fishing story is really my first outing. Um, I was born in uh, late October and ice gets on the lakes. Well, it used to, uh, it would get out on the lakes usually within a couple weeks after that to where it was a couple inches thick and you could go out and then, then you're ice fishing the rest of the winter. And our family ice fished aggressively, um, up through age 12, I probably went ice fishing two or three days a week, limiting out every time. And we'd eat everything we caught, uh, that was, you know, legal and whatnot with the exception of muskie, uh, we'd only keep one a year because, you know, they're special and you want them to grow a little bigger. But um, yeah, my parents had just had me and it was, I believe, December. So I was, I was apparently only two months old. They were out ice fishing, had a bunch of tip ups and they realized they couldn't handle a double if one of them was holding me, meaning, you know, two tip ups going up, uh, you know, there's a kid you got to still hold on to. So they drilled a hole about six inches deep and they had me all wrapped up in blankets and stuff. And for a couple hours, just let me sit in that hole, made sure I wasn't freezing or anything or crying. And they left me in that ice fishing hole while they went and uh, were catching walleye and perch and all that kind of stuff. So 
that was my first experience. Obviously, I have no memory of it. I can visualize it. I've, I've ice fished on that lake, so I can kind of guess what it would look like. But man, I, I grew up, um, you know, chasing minnows and stuff, catching, collecting our own minnows for ice fishing, raising our own minnows. Uh, my first business when I was six years old, I uh, started a, a worms business selling night crawlers, and I'd go out at night and catch them in our yard using a flashlight and uh, sell them by the dozen and eventually grew that business to include minnows and stuff and then sold the whole thing, all the tanks, refrigerators and things that I had bought with the sales from selling bait. Uh, when I was nine, when we moved out of that town, uh, sold the business to one of the neighbor kids. Um, I'm not sure that was legal, but uh, it, it was first job I ever technically had was, you know, selling bait that I had caught myself and reared myself and, and all of that. Um, I ended up moving out of my parents' house when I was 16. I, I graduated high school uh, in, in 10th grade. Um, I was homeschooled and we lived out in the woods. There wasn't, jobs were hard to come by at the time, um, even though our family had a, a plumbing and HVAC business that always would employ me. And I'm sure if I were to, you know, be like, hey, I need a job, you know, they'd, they'd say, oh, of course, because uh, I'm pretty sure every single one of my relatives have worked at that uh, five generation plumbing business. Um, but I, I moved out at 16 and that really put a pause on a lot of my hunting and fishing because I was living in different states. Um, I, I would live in Wisconsin for part of the year, but then I'd be living in other states or be other parts of the world and um, you know, traveling to Europe for work and Alaska and all this. And so I, didn't, I wasn't able to afford uh, hunting licenses or out-of-state fishing licenses. So the only hunting or fishing I might do was when I was back visiting my folks, if I could afford enough to, to go back. So from basically age 16 uh, to 22, I fished a little bit, uh, but didn't hunt, which is a long period for someone who grew up subsistence hunting and fishing. And then uh, once I was married and had kids and we, you know, we settled down here in Montana, uh, it was, I was right back at it. Um, but with a wholly different mindset about it. When I was a kid, it was about filling the freezer. And even as, you know, as an adult, I'm raising kids, kids are expensive. I still want to fill that freezer, uh, because they sure figure out how to empty it real quick. So, you know, I still do that. But one of the things I, I quickly became in contact with and aware of was how the resource needed help, uh, and how there were very few people, um, showing up to volunteer to help with conservation stuff to help you know ensure the resource was still around i'd be out in, in the middle of a hunt and uh there'd be a bunch of you know trash out there there'd be um in the river there there'd be all these uh you know folks going out and having a splash and giggle time on top of the spawning beds and things like that and part of me wanted to be the crotchy old man just yelling at them um, but I also knew that that wouldn't work. So I used to be the person jumping and splashing on the spawning beds too. Uh, so I started finding all these different groups in the, in the area here, uh, that I could volunteer with and, uh, to, to try to help. And through that volunteering, you start to find out about even more issues. You start finding out about this species or that species that needs help. Um, I found out how, like here in this Bozeman area, that's just so proud of its conservation heritage. We used to have a herd of over 300 pronghorn. Now there's less than 50 because we've developed over all of it. Uh, we have elk migratory corridors that have just been cut because of condos going in. 
um, or you know housing developments that could have been planned a little bit differently. They could still go in. They just you know there wasn't anyone or there were too few people uh, standing up for stuff. So I started getting more involved, volunteering and volunteering, and through that ended up. Uh, meeting Randy Newberg, who y'all might know, he has a TV show on YouTube and on Amazon uh, called Fresh Tracks. Uh, he used to also be on our Sportsman's channel down here, but he wanted more folks to be able to see it outside the country, and Amazon gave that offer. Um, anyway, he I would see him all the time when I was volunteering at these events, you know, for fundraising or whatever. He was almost always the speaker because he's a local celebrity. And uh, one day he calls me up at about 7.30 in the morning. And my first thought was, who died? Um, he said, no, you need to go and apply for a job. And I thought it was something in design and marketing, because that's what I was doing to pay the bills by that point. And so I showed up to interview for that. And turns out it was the executive director position for 2%. Cool. So that's, that's kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of, of getting me from sitting in an ice hole to what I'm doing now. Um, but I think there's a lot of folks, you know, in my time in Canada, I've met a lot of folks who grew up a lot like me. Um, very similar. And, and in many ways, I feel a strong camaraderie to folks from, you know, Ontario. Um, when I was up in BC for the uh, Wild Sheep Society of, of BC's Jurassic Classic, I met a lot of folks who were sharing. I mean, we talked about the same things that we all did when we were kids. And that camaraderie that the conservation world has um, is just phenomenal. Um, and the, the do-it-yourself stick-to-itiveness that a lot of folks have is, is just so inspiring. The conservation, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite topics. And it seems to be um, a debated topic as well at times. I mean, there seems to be a dichotomy over the word conservation. I think it gets confusing with, you know, the nuances of animal welfare versus animal rights. And, you know, those are two different things. And, um, you know, I also think that, you know, in terms of hunters and conservation, you know, that workload is, is kind of um, burdened by uh, a minority of the group. So, um, but anyway, these are things we can, maybe we can, we can touch on later, but uh, maybe for the listeners, you can just tell us what 2% for conservation is and, and how it all got started. Um, maybe start with the genesis and, and then we'll go over, you know, what 2% stands for and, and how that all sort of works. Yeah, absolutely. So 2% originally started out of the offices of Sitka Gear. Um, the president of our board and, and founder, uh, Jeff Spazito, was at the time uh, working over at Sitka. He's now over at Stone Glacier, another 2% certified business. Um, but it started as an internal program for them to help ensure that they were giving back. And, and part of it came from a pressure here in the States of... You know, we have these excise taxes, the mainly in the hunting world, we talk about the Pittman-Robertson uh, Act, which came about in the 1930s. You know, it's a, a tax of 11% on firearms, ammunition, and uh, tags and archery equipment. Uh, mainly, you know, anything around hunting, you're going to be paying an 11% tax was kind of the idea. At the time of the writing of that bill, um, no one thought of gear being built specifically for hunters someday, <laughs> you know, like backpacks and tents and camo and, you know, all this alpine stuff and waterfowl stuff. Like no one thought about that. Duck calls had only been invented something like 50 years prior. So those things were not included in that tax. And it is often brought up in the hunting world here in the States of, well, hey, you know, us archery guys, selling our bows we have to pay a tax but you guys making these jackets don't so Sitka said hey let's put one on ourselves 
So they started out, they were going to do a, a 1% of gross sales. They would donate to conservation as a baseline. Uh, it guaranteed every year they would do that. And they also came around and kind of workshopped it to the different conservation organizations here in the Bozeman area. Um, and when they were doing that, I happened to be at a couple of those because I was volunteering either as a, you know, schmuck carrying stuff in or, you know, a gopher, uh, bringing in the, the beers or the coffees for the meeting, uh, or I might be on one of the boards or committees or whatever. And uh, they were asking, what else should we do? And a lot of us were saying, we'd love to see some time donated. We'd love to know that a business like Sitka or anyone else would come and volunteer their time. And the reason why we all really wanted that was, you know, if you've been on a fence pole or, uh, you know, going up and clearing out conifers in an area, if you have a, a contractor show up, who has the tools and has all that it's it's so much cheaper than if you're paying that contractor uh, same goes if you have a company show up with five employees that's five volunteers you don't need to go source you just make sure that the company is on the list and now you've got these extra five folks because with conservation work to your point of the hunters carrying a lot it's often one percent of the population doing 99 percent of the work and 99 percent of the fundraising so they really wanted to move that needle a bit. So we said, you know, why don't you add some time to it? So they went and did that. This was back in 2015. They were, they were sorting this out. Uh, and then in mid-2016, they decided to make it be a nonprofit. So uh, we became an official nonprofit in the summer of 2016. Uh, and the first business to sign on after Sitka was First Light their direct competitor from only one state away over in Idaho. And that really kind of set the tone for uh, this, this notion of conservation not being a competition, that you can compete in the marketplace, you can compete with your, your gear and, and free market, you know, all of that. But when it comes to conservation, let's try to work together. Let's partner on things. Let's not try to own every single project because that really you know, lessens how many folks can be involved. And it really shrinks your reach um, when, you, when you pigeonhole uh, with exclusive partnerships and stuff. So it, the first two were Sitka and First Light. Uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation along with Sitka provided some seed dollars for us to you know, buy our first brochures, buy a uh, pop-up tent for going to events. Uh, a couple booth things here or there. Um, and the original notion was we'll just have this certification and businesses that are already doing this, they'll naturally come to us and we'll certify them for it. Like that was, that was the general idea was folks who are already doing this will, will show up. Shortly after my hiring, it became very evident that the bulk of inquiries we were going to get were from folks who want to have their business start giving back, but don't know how which is an entirely different service to provide on top of the certification. So I'll get into that here in a second, but the certification is, is basically like, you know, we have things like the Better Business Bureau where you've been verified, you, you know, your, your taxes look good, your, your employee welfare is good, you, you know, all these things that says this is a good business. We are basically that, but for conservation. For a business to be certified with us, they have to be giving at least 1% of their gross sales and 1% of one employee's time to fish and wildlife conservation work. So not every employee, but at least 1% of one employee's time, which works out to about 21 hours a year, which is not hard to hit. 
um, especially if you have a crew of, you know, three or four, you spread that out amongst them, you can do some serious, you know, positive damage with that. And for businesses to sign on, we have a very simple application on our website. Um, we always hop on a call with every business. Now we have, we've got like a certified piano repair company in Alabama. You know, we've got uh, environmental engineers, we have guides, we have you name the kind of gear, um, you know, getting certified with us. Uh, we just certified a doy, uh, sorry, a dog toy company, uh, dog treat company. Um, and they're all over the place. Any kind of business, uh, you know, we can, we can certify them if they're giving at least 1% of gross sales in 1% of time. Or this was one of the pivots we had to make early on was instead of saying, hey, show us proof from last year. What we've done now is when a business first wants to sign on with us, we can say, you can commit to the coming year. You don't have to go back or you don't have to wait for a year before you join us. We can let you come on, commit for this first year, and we'll work with you over the course of the year to make sure that you're hitting that commitment of 1% of dollars in 1% of time. On the dollar side, it doesn't have to be just cash. And for many businesses, you know, this last year, cash was hard. Um, many, many businesses, uh, outdoor industry, a little less so because, you know, they just blew up with everyone suddenly wanting to go outside. Um, but for many businesses, it was a struggling year. So we also count donation of products, uh, and we count the product at MSRP, um, you know, so at full cost, if they do a donation of, of, uh, that's partial. So like, let's say, um, you know, there are a couple organizations that give the sheep society of BC, uh, a discount for their volunteers. That discount, we, cough, we count off of MSRP for them. So let's say they give a 40% discount on gear. We count that 40% uh, towards that business's 1% of gross sales because, again, they're helping a conservation cause out. Same goes for services. Uh, we have guides donate uh, to different causes, you know, a, a hunting trip or a fishing trip or a backpacking excursion, something like that. Even if they do it at a partial discount, we count that. Uh, off of the full cost towards that 1% of gross sales. Because again, it really helps. You know, all these auctions you're seeing online right now, those donated trips, we count those. Great example would be the Goat Alliance one right now. Uh, there's about seven, 2% business members in there that either donated product or trips or services. And we count that at the end of the year towards their 1% of gross sales. The 1% of time, we really let them choose how to do that. We can help them and we help many businesses figure those things out where they can make the most impact with their time. But we count everything from, you know, graphic design time for ads for conservation causes on your website. Um, we count, you know, going out and doing a little trail cleanup, doing a creek cleanup, um, going and volunteering on a survey, going to a public meeting or any more, you know, writing a, a official comment not comments on Facebook, but, you know, an official comment uh, to your local uh, lawmakers and wildlife managers about a conservation issue. We count all those things because we know, you know, from our time in volunteering as, as conservationists, how potent that time spent can really be if it's something that folks are passionate about. As far as, you know, how the giving works, we do not touch a dollar of it, nor do we dictate the time, like I said. Um, there's, there's a misconception that an organization like us, that we would take 1% of gross sales. We don't do that. We let the business give directly and then we verify that it happened. So if someone were to choose a cause to give to a project, um, 
Like last year, a lot of our members gave to a, a caribou breeding pen in BC, uh, or not breeding pen, sorry, a calving pen in BC. Um, they chose that. We didn't. We we provided information about the opportunity, but they gave to that program uh, uh, with the Arrow Lakes folks directly. We didn't dictate it in any way, shape, or form. Nor did it go through our bank account before going there. The checks went directly there. So the way we stay afloat is our business members pay annual dues and our dues structure is really nominal. We tried to make it one of the cheapest certifications out there because we'd rather, if a business had to choose between, you know, paying their dues or giving back, we'd rather that, you know, they'd be able to hit that 1% of gross sales and giving back. Um, and we have that on our website as well on the business certification page. And on that note, uh, Canadians do not pay exchange rate nor do any other outside of US business. So uh, instead of paying, uh, I think our base level is $300 US. Instead of paying $300 US, you pay 300 Canadian. So that way you're not, you know, and, and we talked to Canadians about this ahead of time. They're like, we're happy to pay the full amount. We're used to paying the full. If I can help put those other dollars to the ground in Canada, I'd rather see that. So no matter what country someone's out of, they pay, the dollar amount, but in their currency, instead of uh, translating over to the states, because we don't want cost to be an impotence to getting folks involved. And then of course, for individual members, it's the same kind of thing, except it's free. Uh, so for individuals, uh, it's, it's more of an honor system. You know, you fill out where you're giving to and whatnot, and there's a page for that on our website too. Uh, you mark down where you intend to give, but we're not checking people's financials. We wouldn't be allowed to have members outside of our state if we did that much less our country. Um, if we were checking financials of individuals, we'd have to pay a ton of <laughs> outside money for that. Um, so it's honor system. And, and we, we warn folks that you'll get all the outside diseases that I personally have gotten. So you'll get Lyme's, you'll get dysentery, you'll get Giardia, COVID. you'll get COVID and heart attack. You know, a heart attack and, and you'll lose your arrow after every shot and you'll shank every, you know, uh, if you lie about it. So with individuals, it's free. It's also on the honor system. It comes with some perks and stuff, but we love seeing individuals take on the standard for themselves and live it out in their communities because that's when it becomes really potent. When you get other folks in your community involved with committing their time and dollars to your local resources, it's much more potent um, than, you know, just leaving it at the business end of things. Well, uh, you know, buds, I had a whole list here of questions for you and you kind of just rifled through them. So you can tell you've, uh, you've done a few of these in your day because you knew what questions were coming. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if there were any that stuck out, I know I, I went kind of fast through that and odds are, I know folks miss stuff when I start rambling real fast. So, um, if there's any per in particular, you think we should hit again, I'm happy to. No, no, you covered it all, man. That's, uh, that's pretty good. It's interesting. You said the first two uh, members were Sitka and First Light. I find that yeah. interesting because they're both, you know, what camel companies are kind of like and clothing companies, you know, they're, they're not very willing to, uh, to communicate. I, I think um, I heard someone say the only time you're going to get a camel company in the same room is um, if they're in a lawsuit. So it's interesting. You got those two <laughs> on board at the first time. Well, and not, not just that, but here, here's another crazy thing that happened with it. Um, so shortly after I had, I had taken over, uh, Randy called again. He said, hey, I'd like to do a podcast with a couple of your members and, and see you know, if, if folks can hear what 2% is about. And I said, what if we got the owner of First Light and the founder of Sitka 
on the same podcast. Ammo companies are, they're only ever suing each other. And, you know, I, I'd spent some time working in the hunting industry before 2%, um, and specifically a lot of stuff in the Southeast where two very large kind of older camo brands are based out of who are always suing each other. And uh, I thought, how crazy would it be that for the first time we'd have two, two uh, you know, camel companies on the same thing. And that's where the phrase conservation is not a competition was first said was on that episode. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's part of why our logo is purple. Um, you know, you don't see purple logos really many places. And, and uh, being originally from Wisconsin, I know the Vikings, the Minnesota Vikings football team means nothing to you guys, but it was just something I grew up razzing all the time, you know, uh, for, for not winning Super Bowls uh, the way my dear Packers did. But, uh, you know, purple, people are often like, why that? Well, the reason is, is conservation should be apolitical. It should be outside politics. It should not be dictated by, by partisan lines. Granted, you have to wade into politics for some things and hunters are starting to realize how much we need to be standing up for good science-based conservation. Um, which by the way, we do count people's time for that. If you're calling in or taking part in campaigns for science-based conservation, where we absolutely count those hours um, towards your certification, but uh, it shouldn't be something owned by any side of the political spectrum. Uh, even though there's a lot of money to be made and causing that kind of strife. Uh, that is not something healthy for the long term, and it's not going to bring in the massive amounts of people to help our ecosystems like we need. So mm -hmm. it's a big part of who we are. Yeah. I had a question for you, actually. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this for me or not, but uh, some people, they, they ask me um, the same question, but uh, is there a connection with how we deal with wildlife up here you know, with how our wildlife management um, is dealt with in Canada, is there a connection or like a trickle down effect on what happens to that species of animal down in the States and vice versa? Like the grizzly bear hunt in 2017, when BC banned the grizzly bear hunt, and I know it stirred an uproar in the United States. And a lot of guys in BC said, well, what the hell do those guys care for? It's affecting us, not them. But that's kind of the, the question eh? is like, what impact is when something like that happens up here in BC, what what sort of impact does that have to you guys down there, if any? So it or is it more, been, go ahead, I'll let you answer before. It's been documented to have a direct correlation um, based on proximity. So, you know, BC being a coastal province, um, you know, the, the directly south is Washington state. And then south of that is Oregon and south of that is California. And... <laughs> <laughs> Washington and California in particular are states that uh, hunters and anglers like to hate on a bit because they do get a lot of what we call ballot biology, where the biologists are taken out of the equation and it comes down to a ballot initiative. You know, you get enough signatures, you can put something like a banning of a certain type of hunt or a banning of a certain type of take in your hunt. Um, just by putting it on the ballot and getting enough folks to vote for something that they don't understand. Um, and those, man, those things are dangerous. So the trickle down does seem to be in showing that it's possible because some of our States specifically, um, you know, those that allow ballot initiatives uh, every two to four years 
and have major urban areas disconnected from wildlife and disconnected from outdoor education. There's a difference between urban areas that are disconnected and those that are connected. Um, for example, in, in the Midwest, for a long time, our urban areas were connected to the resource. Even though you could be living in a city of over a million people, those kids were still required to go to outdoor education classes. So they learned about wolves. They learned about the life cycles of deer. They learned about waterfowl and migra migratory needs as teenagers, typically, uh, you know, between the ages of 12 and 18, they would be sent at least one week every school year uh, to go to some outdoor education facility. And those started to go away about 20 years ago. I, I was teaching outdoor education at the tail end of it. So without that, our urban areas don't know, but they are a voting populace with those ballots. So when you see something like you know, a ballot initiative that says we are trying to save this species by quitting, you know, this type of hunting. Whether or not what they're saying is accurate, people are feeling like they're being a good person and going along with it. So the direct correlation with Canada is when you see something happen up there, the people who want to, you know, work in bad faith down here and push through agendas instead of having it be science-based, um, they, they take advantage of it. And, and they take advantage of it on both sides of the spectrum either by introducing types of hunting that are less fair, they're, you know, that are less fair chase. We've had those things show up on ballots and pass through in Western states in the last five years um, or through our senates, you know, where those decisions are being made uh, by congressmen who have been voted in uh, by a bunch of schmucks and, and are now voting on wildlife issues. A, a couple of the older guys here uh, who volunteer in the conservation space, they like to say that you don't have to go to school to work in wildlife biology in Montana. You just need to get a bunch of schmucks to vote for you. You know, and this conversation comes up and, you know, here in Canada, we don't, it's not quite as technical as, as, as it is down there. You talked about less fair chase. Yeah. So maybe just explain what you mean by that a little bit. This gets into two hot topics. Um, one, one being the, you know, no friendly fire from other hunters. Like, Okay, but that means no accountability too. Like if, if you're allowed to start hunting sheep from a helicopter, we got a problem, right? Like, and, and it's been proposed. <laughs> there are folks who have tried to make that be the kind of tag that you could buy to, you know, get an influx of money and have someone pay six figures to shoot a sheep from a helicopter. So what's the reasoning with that? Is that to make, like, are these people who are opposing hunting and they want to make hunting less appeasable the the reasoning given on on that specific thing i might have chosen a bad example because it's so outlandish um but the reasoning given was we can raise money you know we can we can as a state charge a lot for that tag we could put it up to auction and you know for that experience um that was the reasoning given by the person within the state government uh, but then the folks interested, they just want to shoot something from a helicopter <laughs> um, and, and maybe fund some conservation with it was their thought. Now, the public eye on that, that's that's the part of that conversation that just really seems to forget that the public is watching us. Yeah, and, and everything we do, they're watching, you know, that's every, social media is a conversation that we won't get into that today. But, um, you know, if they just banned Facebook altogether, I'd be perfectly fine. Oh, with that. I'd, I'd, I'd be stoked. Um, yeah. And I say that knowing that its algorithm, you know, kind of hates conservation causes in general because uh, they've labeled conservation as a political term. So the algorithm doesn't give us as much 
um, bandwidth as some other pages that work with wildlife stuff. But so the first area was the, um, you know, and the, the less fair chase, you know, the argument is, well, that's a in the family thing. Let's not have that conversation be public. And hard thing is then if it's not, you, you haven't had enough devil's advocates testing your theory before you go and try to take it to the public, because eventually it's going to be in public regulation. So you do need to have, you know, some, some outside talk. The other thing is opportunity. And a, a big thing uh, that we are struggling with, especially in the Western U.S. right now, the Eastern U.S. kind of lost this about 50 years ago. Southern U.S. is still in the process of losing it. And we're just starting to really lose it here in the Western U.S. is opportunity for anyone. So, you know, if, if you're a, a guy who's who's making, you know, 50000 a year, uh, driving fence poles, let's just say, you know, you're a ranch hand or something like that, or an apprentice or whatever. The way the North American model, you know, the U.S. side of the North American model is, is you should be able to afford a tag. It, it shouldn't matter, you know, in your state, it shouldn't matter how deep your pocketbook is. You should be able to afford a tag for harvesting food for your family. And most states, you know, have that in some way, shape or form written into into their laws. And I know in, in some parts of, of Canada, there are some, you know, uh, areas under attack in that way. Um, but what we're running into now is a real desire now that hunting has become a bit more popular. Um, despite all the things you hear about, you know, hunter numbers are dropping this, that or whatever, actually our hunter numbers are really high versus the land we have to hunt and the resource that's there. Um, the there's this big push uh it's called r3 you know to recruit retain and and whatnot uh with the hunting base to try to have more hunters therefore a larger voice within politics around hunting the problem is we don't have enough resource for it and a lot of the resource that we had meaning land you could go to water you could go to has become locked up by individuals who want to charge i mean i have heard like $150 for a white-tailed doe, you know, to be able to come in and shoot a white-tailed doe. Now, at that point, you might as well be buying a hog, right? A um, lot less work, a um, lot less hassle. You're not dealing with the landowner who's, you know, watching you the whole time. Where it used to be, uh, you could go virtually anywhere and it would be on a handshake. You know, you'd bring a six-pack of beer, maybe some coffee and donuts to say thank you in the morning, offer to do some yard work, some ranch work around the property and, and you could go out and hunt properties. That does not exist the way it used to uh, because it's been so heavily monetized. Uh, since I've lived in Montana, several of my hunting spots that I had been given access to have been taken away and they now wanna charge under new ownership, they wanna charge a lot more. So you have that going on where you're losing places to go and then you add efficiency to the killing of, of, you know, whatever the species is you're going after. Uh, uh, hunter efficiency. That's what I mean. The, yeah. the hunter efficiency goes way up. So you're losing, you're losing places to go. And now you can buy higher efficiency as a hunter. Yeah. Meaning, you know, you can now take a shot at 1500 yards, hypothetically, though the people who can actually do that are far fewer than those who say they can. Um, I teach hunters ed, so I get the statistics on this stuff from the state all the time. And it's shocking 
how many big game animals are found at the end of the year by wardens uh, having been hind shot and from a location it looks like it was you know a 1500 yard shot um we have that going on at the same time so dwindling resource and lessening of fair chase principles you are writing a recipe for lessening of opportunity and when you have less opportunity you have way less dedicated interest not only for the activity but for the resource overall and taking care of the species and the land so it's a struggle we're seeing right now kind of the front end of it and the old timers you know from here in the western states would be like this isn't the front end i've been dealing with this my whole life but there's been a real ramp up um, in the last 10 years or so um, maybe 15 years with with more policies to try to you know sell bigger better stuff but at the end of the day it does not ensure opportunity for future generations no it exactly. ensures an easier opportunity for the person with the deepest pocketbook yeah um everything you said makes makes a ton of sense there um i had a question and i lost it but uh no that's good yeah that was kind of i was just wondering the correlation between that and and uh i've been asked that question a number of times too and i i uh i you know although i talked to a lot of you folks down there I, I never really had an answer of 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 how it affects you guys but when you when you say it like that i mean i guess with the grizzly bear um you know yeah i mean that's just a staple for other you know say a worldwide organization that opposes hunting to begin with they're looking at that and saying no well um a place that wants to reintroduce a grizzly bear hunt they're gonna you know when they have a a place not too far away in, in terms of the ecosystem they're like no well this province here they just banned the grizzly bear hunt for this reason and you know they're going to be pushing for you know the opposite down down there and vice versa i guess um so yeah no that makes perfect sense you have right now um two states are, are trying to get grizzly hunts you know back on the books here uh in different ways uh the challenge is i mean that's several podcasts worth just on on the challenge of what that would look like you know getting it um, reintroduced yeah because we did have grizz hunts here up into the 90s yeah uh, and I, rem I I know that's a topic that i've heard lots of people talk about in um the the numbers are sustainable for grizzly bear and in bc i mean like come on we have more more yeah. black bears and more grizzly bears than than we have probably people so and but they still shut it down but that had nothing to do with the science that had everything to do with a, you know a political promise so and unfortunately um you know the animals are the ones who are going to end up paying the price for it right that's that ballot biology and that's that's why we we put such a, a you know that's why the time was included with our model when we started um because for years especially here in the states um hunters just kind of hid behind well i pay a tax therefore i'm a conservationist many many did and i man i get flack i guarantee you as soon as this podcast goes live if someone listened through to this point and is from the states and be like shut up dude. i'm gonna get an email you're gonna get an email <laughs> um but the fact is is we did the majority of hunters said well i pay a tax therefore i'm a conservationist or i you know filled my tags this year i did my part therefore i'm a conservationist and what i like to tell folks is if a tax makes you a conservationist then my property tax makes me an elementary school teacher. It makes me a firefighter. It makes me a police officer. <laughs> it makes me all the things that my taxes go towards, um, you know, or, or if I do a little DIY around the house, you know, just as up, like if I, if I, uh, you know, vacuum my living room, it's like, well, you know, I'm a remodeler cause I did a little housework. That's, that is the equivalent. 
And the reality is all these things come to ballots. They, they start getting taken away from us when the general public doesn't understand the resource. And it's not that they don't understand hunting. That's not the worst problem. It's that they don't understand what the resource needs because we can have a discussion about hunting once they understand the resource, but you'll never have an honest discussion about hunting until the resource is understood. Absolutely. You're, you're yes. going to be showing up out of balance. And again, the people who vote for these things, they think they're doing a good thing because they don't understand the resource. So having hunters and anglers and anyone, we have a lot of folks in our membership, about a third of them don't hunt or fish, uh, but they might bird watch, they might be arborists, you know, they might, they might get out and, and work on the resource in different ways. They might, you know, love just backpacking, skiing or whatever. Um, and in the giving of people's time, the general public, your communities start to understand. And when they start to understand, then we can tackle some of these bigger topics and, and tackle some of these, you know, greater management and social issues. But unless the general public knows, ain't nothing good going to happen. Yeah, and exactly. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's only hurting the animals because unfortunately, I mean, uh, well, down in the States, you have the Pittman, Roberts and Dingle Johnson funds. Now, if there's no hunters, like I, I don't know the numbers of how much that tax brings in a year. Billions and um, 100% of it goes to wildlife agencies. Yeah. And you see up in Canada, we would love to have a tax like that that's committed to those funds going back into wildlife resource. Because up here in Canada, we have our government takes the money from our tags, takes the money from like our fishing licenses, our hunting licenses, our hunting tags, takes that money. And only a small percentage of that gets put back into the wildlife resource. The, the rest of the weight, the rest of the money, we bear all ourselves. You no, know, in Canada, I mean, we're taxed out the ass. We pay a lot of taxes on the money we earn. We pay a lot of taxes on the goods we buy, the services we, we pay for on our fuel has a, our fuel has a tax on top of a tax. And, but I know there's a lot of guys who would be perfectly fine if we paid a little bit more on our on our, our hunting licenses, our fishing licenses, and our tags, and that all that money, if we knew for sure that money went back into the resource. And so that's again where where we brought the standard in, because the idea of introducing a tax, man, they just don't fly right now. Um, oh. I, I often this is a debate that goes on in the conservation community quite a bit, and it's it's usually at the time it's it's at something like a banquet or whatever. It gets to be about 2 a.m. You got the mix of the old guys who are sitting there to tell their stories. You got the mix of the young folks who are thinking they're going to party till dawn, you know, and <laughs> after raising all this money. And someone always goes, hey, you think we could pass Pittman Robertson right now? You think it'd be possible? You know, and, and it, it just turns into this war, you know, of, of yes, it would be. No, we couldn't. Or, you know, you don't understand how bad the culture's gotten. Well, you don't understand how good parts of it. So that has been this 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 tug and pull you know for years now um you know our our fishing end of things the dingle johnson act that does the same excise tax on fishing licenses and on on uh, fishing equipment went through before i was born um but it's still considered a very new thing compared to Pittman robertson uh, and people talk about how you'd never pass that right now. Cause we've talked about, you know, backpack tax. Why aren't backpackers paying? Why aren't they, you know, paying for their jackets, for their tents. And it goes back to the thing with why we were started. 
uh, the company that started us didn't have to pay a tax, but they wanted to self-impose. And there is something to be said for the amount of money. I mean, it's an obscene amount of money that a flat tax puts on anything uh, compared to trying to get the social will uh, to do things, you know, putting the onus on the business or individual to do that themselves. But I guarantee you, our members are proud about how they give back much more so than, you know, my pride about paying property tax or some of the other things I pay a random tax on. I, I, I'm not walking around, you know, with the sticker on the back or, or driving around with a sticker on the back of my car that says, you know, I paid my income tax this year. Um, you know, but I do have a sticker on the back that says 2% for conservation time plus money equals conservation on the back. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. What's the uh, what's the most interesting business member you have, or the unique business member, or or I guess personal member? Um. So on the business end of things, I mean, it's hard to beat that piano repair company. I mean, that's especially where they're based out of. They're based out of Alabama. You would assume you know it'd be an arborist or something out of Alabama, but I mean, we've got you know those folks. We have. Um, uh, credit card uh, and, and processing, uh, uh, payment processing, electronic payment processing business that's certified, uh, RPS banker. Um, and they, they actually, how they got certified was really cool. Um, Justin and his, his partners over there, they handle all the financial transactions for Sheep Show. And they do it on a very, very steep discount and then donate a portion of what they make off of that back to the Sheep Foundation. Um, so they, you know, one thing, if you've, if you've ever run an event, you know, how expensive it is every single transaction that is being electronically processed. Well, scale that up to sheep show in the millions raised there. Right. Um, he gives an electronic processing fee that is so much smaller than what you can normally get because they do it at a donated rate. And then of course they donate out of what they make on top of that. Um, and which is just really, really cool. So again, not a business you'd think for conservation, but they use what they have uh, to give back. Uh, another one uh, up in, well, not, not your neck of the woods, but over in Alberta, uh, Sawback Technologies owned by Neil Kion. I probably just butchered his last name pr pronunciation, but he does uh, remote drone surveying of industrial areas and then of pipelines looking for leaks. And where he volunteers his time and dollars is he takes his fully customized, personalized drones out with all the different technology that's on them to help do surveys, uh, both of wildlife and of trout and things like that. And he volunteers that uh, for different conservation causes. So again, using what you have um, to help conservation out in a way that is unique to you, um, but fills, fills a need. And we've got piles of businesses like that. Uh, yeah, you, that's cool that you have all those different, you know, the variety of different types of businesses, because a lot of businesses can help out in, in different ways. Wasn't there a, a babysitting, uh, a babysitting yeah. service or a couple girls that were they they should be graduating high school soon here, um, but they were minors. So we couldn't put them on the website, but two girls out of Indiana and you know, we didn't even go through the, you know, emailing their parents to, you know, say, hey, can we put your daughter's babysitting contact in? That's just, you don't do that. Um, but yeah, they had on their little business cards. And, and I mean, little, I wasn't meaning little lady, like they, these little business cards that they had. 
and it had the little 2% logo down at the bottom uh, saying, you know, portion from every hour I work goes back to fish and wildlife conservation here in Indiana. Good for them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So whenever I'm, I'm talking to a business that's like, I don't know, 1% sounds like a lot. I, if I'm feeling particularly snarky, I bust out the babysitters. Um, <laughs> Cause yeah. if they can do it um, it's, it's something that should be attainable for virtually anyone. Yeah. And 1% is not a lot. If you can't dedicate 1% of your time to conservation, then um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Struggle comes in with the guys who, you know, they brag about how many days a year they're out hunting, but we can't get them to show up for a single, single volunteer project in the off season in the very areas that they hunt. Yeah. You can't go to one mule deer count or one sheep count. Do some scouting. Come on. Or even take a hike and go pick up trash where you go hunt, you know? Um, Yeah. We do, we do that regularly with my kids. We, whenever we go out, we, I always have a, a big garbage bag. And I remember the first time I did it with my kids, they were blown away and they just loved it. And now yeah. it's a competition now. Of course, they're a little older, right? So I have my oldest son and my daughter, they're they're pretty close in age. So everything they do is a competition. They're only 14 months apart. So, oh yeah, it's that's, a that's big... about like mine, they're everything they do. Yeah. So is there more, is there one versus the other, like 1% time or 1% money that is uh um more beneficiary to the to your organization or they or is it just specific when it when it seems yes and no so on the dollar side right now dollars or donated contractor services so if you provide a a service that could be used like some of the certified uh, environmental consultants or engineers that we have uh or web designers you know, folks who provide a service that a conservation group could use, if you can donate that right now, that is so big for the conservation groups that are all hurting for money. So direct cash, and then if you can donate your time as a service, that is is just humongous for conservation causes right now. Product is always good, um, you know, on the dollar side. And then just volunteering your time in your local community is good too. Uh, But if someone wants to make an outsized impact right now, you know, where it's worth more right now than it might be worth at any time in the last five years or maybe the upcoming five years, if you're a specialist in something and you see a need within a conservation group, like you go on their website and it sucks, or if you're always, you know, you're trying to check out or whatever and the page freezes and you happen to specialize in that, offer it up, Um, you know, see if, if there's some way you can help out. Um, and if you have cash, a lot of organizations, especially those that have to cover, you know, many of them, they're trying to keep their deposits on the buildings where they often do their fundraisers. Uh, you know, they, they booked places, assuming we would have fundraisers in person this year. And some, some places can, some places cannot, um, at this point still, but, um, you know, if you've got cash to give, it's going to help them make stuff happen. Uh, we've, we've got, um, different folks in our membership who have let us know that there are individuals eating the cost of rental facilities, um, you know, for banquets that ended up not happening and they're paying mm-hmm. out of their own pockets to try to cover for the next year because the organizations don't have money to cover it. So right now, cash and professional services are worth by and large more than they normally are. 
Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, uh, we're, uh, we're over an hour here and, uh, you got a, you got, uh, some mending up to do and, uh, <laughs> I'm going to, uh, I'm going to let you go, buddy, but, uh, thanks right. for stopping by today. It's, uh, it's always good to talk to you and, uh, I'll check in on you here in, uh, in the next little while to make sure you're, uh, sure you're healing. Okay. I'm, uh, again, I, I wish I would have known that, uh, all that stuff went down. I would have, would have reached out and made sure you're okay. I obviously, I know you're a t- tough SOB and you can, you can handle it. And uh, I am sure you didn't want any attention. Um, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, that blue collar upbringing is hard to shake off. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I am bummed that I won't be able to come up for Jurassic classic again this year, but on the flip side, I probably wouldn't have been allowed to reel one of them big buggers in anyway. So, yeah. you know, I would have been catching bait for everybody the entire time, which is, I'm happy <laughs> to do it, but it's not a great look, you know, yeah, so tying hooks. <laughs> Dean would have just told me I was doing it wrong the whole time. Cause he would have been right. But, uh, well, we'll yeah. see you up here in 2022, I think. Hell yeah. Hopefully. Hell okay, yeah. man. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you later. Have a great weekend. You believe that? Wow. I guess it's all worth it. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.